Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off. bluenile.com code LISTEN. And welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kabe. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Ali. Um, Ali, uh, glad you're here with us today. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Emily Frank. She is a pediatrician and a public school teacher. A really interesting combination. We're going to talk about opening schools again in a time of COVID, the risks, the benefits, all that stuff. But before we do, um, you you had a warm reception online from your first appearance uh on our show i'm uh, glad people love the hair <laughs> I do first, of all, first of all it's his second appearance he was on yes. the con episode where we talked right. to salman khan and then he was featured his dating life and his woes and joys of being a high school kid we're on the episode was on the episode a few weeks ago with you and joe um but yeah look at your hair we should post another photo of you it, and your hair. It is I mean, you could, it's only going to be longer, yeah. Uh, someone thought you looked like a young George Clooney. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I'll take it. Yeah, you'll take it. He's like one of the most handsome men of all time. Yeah, you'll take it. It wasn't like they yeah. said you were like Weirdo Yankovic or something. Jesus. All right. Yeah. S- stay tuned, everyone. We have a great guest coming up. And if you haven't already, please follow us at Twitter at The House of Pod. Um, if you haven't already, subscribe at iTunes. If you feel so inclined, leave us a review. Um, and this is a great episode, so I think you'll enjoy it. And we'll want to hear your thoughts for sure afterwards regarding schools being reopened in your neighborhoods, in your towns, in your states. On today's show, we have Dr. Emily Frank. She is a pediatrician at UCSF, and she's also a public school teacher, which I have to admit is an interesting combination that I had not heard of until now. I mean, we've heard of doctor slash musicians, doctor slash podcasters, but doctor slash public school teacher, I have not, and I am fascinated to talk to you. 
about that and talking about reopening schools. So, Dr. Frank, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so the, the, the first thing I think we should do is if you could just explain to us how it is that you are both a uh, medical doctor, a practicing doctor, and a public school teacher. Yeah, I, I really love um, my work um, and both of the fields that I work in. And um, I, the way I make it work is I teach public school in the mornings. So I teach Monday through Friday at my school. And then all of my clinical work takes place in the afternoon or the evenings or the weekends. Um, and so that's how I'm able to juggle the two together. Which one do you like more? Just kidding. You don't have to choose. It's like choosing children. You don't have to do that. <laughs> but that is that something that you just kind of that you've always known that you wanted to do both or is it something that you, cause most people at some point feel compelled, I guess you're proving everyone wrong to have to choose a career path. So how, how did that come for you? Great question. I think that since I was in college, I was really interested in this spectrum of science, biological science and education. And I wasn't sure where on that pathway I wanted to land. Um, I had thought about being a biology professor. Um, I had thought about public health, and I had had a really amazing experience teaching um, abroad in college, and so decided that I wanted to teach after I was in college. And throughout medical school, I stayed involved in public schools, initially in Boston, and then during residency, um, got involved with the Oakland Unified School District. And I really found my happy place as having a foot in both worlds. Um, and was really excited that um, that I was able to make it work. All of my mentors, whom I respect very much, told me to pick one or, or pick the other. <laughs> and um, it, in in many ways, that's probably what I should have done um, in terms of sanity. But I I really love the combination that I have now. That's amazing. I. Uh, I, I had always been looking for the point of convergence, and I never realized that point was going to be whether or not to open schools in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, you seem uniquely primed to help sort through this question that um, a lot of parents have, um, myself included. So um, before we, we get to some of that detail, let's just start with the basics about transmission. So what do we know about transmission of COVID in children? We are still learning a lot. Um, so rooting us um, in the basic science of COVID in general, um, we know that it is a virus. We know that when it's infected, it can exist in a person's droplets. Um, we think that there may also be um, a short range aerosol component and when we breathe um, uh, and if we are infected, then we expel those virus droplets through our nose, through our mouth, and that can infect a person through their eyes, their nose, or their mouth. What we've been seeing um, throughout um, these first several months of the pandemic is children seem to be a half to as third as likely to adults to become infected. And I think we're still scientifically trying to understand why that is. There's some different hypotheses. For example, um, we know that to enter the body, the um, virus needs to enter through the ACE2 receptor, which is usually expressed in the nasal passages. And we know that um, the, or we, 
in some studies, it's shown that the expression of the ACE2 receptor increases with, with age. So one question um, or hypothesis that comes out of that is, are children less likely um, to get coronavirus because they don't have as much expression of the ACE2 receptor? And there's some data in support of that. And there's also some data that point away from that. Another um, sort of possibility in terms of thinking about transmission in kids is we've seen that um, COVID often presents very differently in kids. So in adults, they often have fevers, cough, myalgias, meaning body aches, whereas in kids, they often are asymptomatic. Um, at least half of them are not having fevers. This could present, you know, as a runny nose or a sore throat or a headache or some stomach symptoms. And so um, one thought, too, in terms of kids and transmission is that um, perhaps because kids are less symptomatic, because they are not coughing and sneezing as a result of this, maybe they are transmitting less. I know you've looked into this already. What have we learned so far from other places? I know that there's been some studies out of Iceland, out of Switzerland. There is a small a uh, report out of France as well. I know they're all observational studies, but what have we gained from what other countries have seen so far? Yeah, so great question. Um, so there are some countries who kept open either daycares or elementary schools um, during um, the initial parts of the COVID outbreak. Um, and so what um, could be seen from those studies is, you know, with social isolation, excuse me, with social um, distancing in a country where the prevalence is low, bringing kids together didn't necessarily lead to large outbreaks. Um, so there was a Swiss study um, that was quite small, and it looked at 39 children who had been hospitalized and were under age 16. And what they did was they did a lot of interviews to do contact tracing. And what they found was that in 80% of cases, the adult at home had had symptoms either before the child showed symptoms or at the same time. Um, and so what that study is suggesting is that it's more likely for adults to pass COVID to their children than for, um, than for children to be passing COVID to them. Um, and then another interesting um, finding from that study was that only about half of siblings um, compared to the majority of the adults ever develop symptoms. And one of the challenges with the data that we have is a lot of times it's cohorted to ages 10 and under or 10 to 17. And so that also leaves us, at least in the US, with this um, incomplete understanding of middle schoolers. And are middle schoolers seeing transmission patterns that's more like elementary school or more like what's seen in high school? That gets, I guess, to the crux of uh, the controversy now. And there's no answer. We know that. But can we talk a little bit about um, what to do as far as, you know, turn off your doctor hat and turn on your teacher hat? Um, what, the, what the pros and the cons are about bringing kids back to school? Because um, we can all, you know, everyone knows COVID is a big risk. Um, even if they're less than 10, they could go home and see their elderly grandparents or elderly parents or whatever, or someone who's sick or immunocompromised. Um, so what 
what are the things that, that you're reading about, um, whether it's internationally or more locally, about um, all these situations, good and bad? Yeah, this is a really, really challenging topic um, that I think stems from the role that schools have played um, in the United States. So yes, they are places of learning, they're also places of connection. They're also places of after-school care um, that takes place. They're also places of food for many of the nation's youth. Um, they're places with access to speak, speech and language services. And so um, what, um, what is making this decision extra complicated is the numerous functions that schools serve. Um, we um, are definitely seeing that distance learning does not work well for the majority of students. Um, and if, you know, we as adults think about how we might act or engage on a Zoom call, um, uh, even if we are employed to do so, it's hard to hold the same expectations for a younger person whose prefrontal cortex is less developed. And so, um, I think a lot of students struggle to engage with screens, and this of course assumes that they have access um, to screens. And one of the things we saw in our school district is many students didn't have computers at home. Even if they did have a computer, they might be sharing it with multiple other siblings. Even if they did have a computer that they could access, their internet connection might not be stable. Um, and so in a distance learning environment, it can disproportionately um, impact students who may not have access to the same technology as other students. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, students are, are very isolated. Many of them are suffering a lot of mental health issues right now, um, whether that's experiencing isolation and depression or anxiety about what's happening in, in the world. But certainly um, in the clinical environments that I work in, we've definitely seen an uptick in um, psychiatric issues with young people. Um, so those are um, some real challenges to continuing distance learning. Um, at the same time, I think there would also be a tremendous amount of challenges to bringing students back to school. Um, you know, particularly, there's so many. So for our teachers um, in California, a third are over the age of 50, um, and that's not even accounting for others who um, may be trying to become pregnant, may have hypertension, um, may have obesity. And even if they don't, we have a lot of teachers who live in multi-generational and staff who live in multi-generational family homes. Um, and so many of our educational workforce may be in the category of high risk. Um, and many are used to having um, an extraordinary extraordinary number of contacts per day. So many middle and upper school um, teachers are, are teaching upwards of 120 or 150 students a day. Um, and, you know, I, I can't imagine any of us right now would be excited about the idea of going into the grocery store and interfacing with 150 different individuals. And yet that's what we'd be asking um, educators to do on a daily basis. Um, you know, and then, and then there's very basic things like we know that, um, cleaning the hands before touching the face is very helpful in preventing the spread of COVID. 
And yet um, in the school I work in, about 40% of the time I can find soap in the bathrooms. Um, and even less often than that, can I find paper towels? And that's, that's just the reality of teaching in um, a school district that is really struggling financially, as many of our California and many of our nation's school districts are. Um, and then if we add on to that, this idea of spacing children six feet apart, um, then we are significantly um, decreasing the number of students we can have in one space at a time. And so all, I think there's many actions that could be taken to mitigate the COVID transmission risk in schools, whether it's personal protective equipment or symptom screens or fewer students or more hand washing stations, but every single one of those interventions costs money. Um, and right now, particularly in California, we're 41st in per pupil expenditure, despite being one of the richest states in the country. And until we really start investing in our public education, I don't think we're going to be able to do it safely. That's, a, that's as good an answer as I feel we're going to be able to get from this really complicated question. But let me ask you um, a follow-up that it sort of made me think of, which is, you know, when you're in the uh, meeting rooms, when you're in the break rooms with other teachers or when you talk to them, do they feel like they're being sacrificed at this point? Do they talk to you and they're secretly like saying that they're, that they're maybe not so secretly just saying that they're scared and they feel like they're being sacrificed for the greater good of the, the economy or for uh, other, for other people? Yeah. I have to put in there, teachers rarely ever make it to the break room, <laughs> but, um, So that's like yes. a myth in those TV shows when they're all sitting around drinking coffee. I cannot recall sitting in the break room unless it was waiting for copies, um, to come out of the copy machine. Um, but yes, I think that, you know, right now we're asking teachers and educators to do something that the vast majority of us wouldn't do. Most of us have been sheltering in place or, you know, perhaps partaking in a small bubble, really trying to reduce um, our, our visits to highly populous places. And what we're asking our educators to do is to expose themselves potentially to hundreds of people on a daily basis. Um, you know, and, and often, I, I think a piece of it is that it's really important that our students are learning as best as possible. Another piece of this feels very tied to reopening the economy. And while it's re important to reopen the economy, um, I think that many educators feel um, as though they are being used, that their health um, and the health of their families and loved ones may be sacrificed to reopen the economy. You're well, saying because the point is to get parents back to work and that the teachers are now expected to be the sacrifice sacrificial babysitter is that is that how people link those things together i assume yeah i think that um i think that some people are very much sort of feeling that link um and you know this pandemic has been incredibly difficult on working parents um right. having a child and teaching a child is a full-time job and whatever their other work is is probably a full-time job and the ability um, to hold two full-time jobs in the space of one is nearly impossible. Um, yeah. And so I think that, you know, there really is a desire to um, not only provide education 
for young people, but also to have a place where young people can be safely during the day so that their parents are able to work. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's in, it's interesting because I think you come from the world of being a doctor and this public health and public school, I'm sorry, experience. And, you know, I, I've heard doctors say similar things. Like they say, don't call us heroes. That's just part of your like plan to say, then you're a hero. Okay. You're expendable now. And you're mm-hmm. in a situation where you're in both, both camps. It's very interesting. You're in a particularly risky, uh, I guess, situation. Ali can has I, it. Yeah, please. Can, can I make a comment on that? Um, so, so that's something I also thought a lot about. So um, in the emergency rooms I work in, my, my job is to take care of children with lower acuity illness. So I, I see all the children with coughs and colds and potentially with COVID type symptoms. And Personally, I would feel fairly comfortable going to school in my personal protective equipment. But what I realized over the last several weeks is as a physician and as a physician who works in the emergency room, I have signed up to be a frontline worker. Um, But educationally, uh, we have not signed up to be frontline (laughs) workers. Um, And realizing that those expectations, those risks are not part of what someone signed up for. Um, And to be quite frank, teachers are not paid anything near what they deserve as is without taking on the extra risks of a frontline worker. Those are, those are fantastic points. Um, We do choose professions with our eyes open for the most part. And knowing what risks we're going to get into and knowing maybe a semblance of like our routine and our lifestyle. And yeah, I totally agree. We all, we've said on the show, I think many times that teachers need to be paid probably 10 to a hundred times more than they get paid. And it is kind of an, uh, an interesting new terrible burden that, that this, um, the COVID situation has put everyone in. All right, Allie, what is your question? Uh, this kind of has to do more with the you talking about like how teachers are feeling like they're being put in this very like bad spot. They're being like like they're um, kind of being you know, like sacrificed almost for this idea of you know education, opening the economy, and all that. So, do you think that schools are going to like listen to this? Do you think that there's a way to adapt classroom settings to make it more of a um, make it more Safe. safe. Yes. Safe for teachers. I think that there are a lot of ways to mitigate um, COVID transmission. I don't, I don't know that it will ever be the kind of thing that we can guarantee that it's zero, but I, I think a lot of steps can be taken. Um, and so one is making sure all, especially all the adult staff have appropriate protective equipment. So masks that are covering their nose and their mouth, um, face shields to cover their eyes and provide an extra layer for their mask. And for teachers who may work with students with uh, moderate to severe um, special education needs who need to be in close proximity to their patients, they may also benefit from being in a gown um, and gloves for protection. Similarly, I think having students masked is really important, um, both to protect themselves and their classmates and their teacher. Um, And then certainly students can consider wearing face shields or or goggles as well to protect their eyes, particularly those who who are in high school and seem to be more susceptible and at higher risk of more serious illness if they become sick. A 
Second protective measure um, is related to physical distancing. And I think that the older the students, the more important this is. Um, and so I think anywhere from three to six feet provides protection. Um, that said, if students are singing or yelling or in PE, that six foot radius needs to be extended a lot further because we can send our droplets a lot further. Um, and then, you know, I think in terms of distancing, it's especially important to think of the distancing of the adults. So while it would be ideal to have five-year-olds six feet apart, the chances of that happening are not very high. But at least if we can keep the teacher six feet apart from those students, I think that's helpful. Hand washing is going to be critical. I think there's been a lot of societal energy around deep cleans. Um, and in the early phases of this disease, we um, were uncertain how much, um, how much of a role contact played. And I think that um, what we're finding is the biggest issue is this virus coming in contact with our eyes, nose, and mouth. And so if we can wash the virus off our hands before that point, um, we can protect ourselves. And so there's been a lot of excitement around cleaning the bathrooms hourly or cleaning the doorknob after every student touches it. But I think the more important and more feasible and realistic focus is to really focus on having students wash their hands and having ample supplies for hand washing before they're tempted um, to touch their eyes or their nose or their mouth. So from my perspective, those are the major three. Certainly, I think the importance of people staying home when symptomatic is greater than it ever has been. I don't think this is like a an absolute solution in that so many people can present asymptomatically, but certainly if they do have symptoms, staying home is important. That's a very important point for like American healthcare to hear as well, you know, all and employers to hear that, you know, because doctors, you're saying teachers, you know, uh, kind of work through it and show up to work sick and it's easier. And as a doctor, you know, the, you know, the mentality of a doctor is you go to work as well. Um, and we also don't want to ask our colleagues to burden ours, us because we know how tight people's schedules are. So the custom is to also show up when you're not feeling well. And we got an email from work, that, uh, I think two weeks ago, that was like, you must honor the following rules. If you feel sick, do not show up. You know what I mean? It's like a different culture now that we have to, A, ask our employer to, if we can stay home. And we also need you know, a culture that supports staying home. And I don't know that we have that in the medicine culture. And it sounds like you don't have that in the culture of education. So that would be a great take-home message for our listeners who are in either of these fields. And, you know, Allie, who's hearing this and learning how to, you know, develop your own work ethic. Like if you don't feel good, it's probably better for the world if you stay home, you know? Yeah. 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 That's great. So we also have some listener questions for you. Uh, let me go through some of them. Um, both Amber at about IBD and Heather at Heather APZ had pretty much the same question. Uh, would love to hear about the possibility or feasibility of allowing at-risk families or those who may not feel comfortable the option of continuing online classes if schools do open. So particularly patients with, with high risk, um, what, what, would, what, what do you think would happen? Great question. I think that especially right now where we know relatively so little, it's really important that all schools are offering an online option. And this ties back to what I was saying about 
um, making the decision to stay home an easy one. And so if there is um, a distance learning program in place by schools, then if a child is sick and needs to quarantine at home, um, they have access to some amount of education that's happening. And I think that's gonna be important for the teaching workforce as well. So I think that um, in-person school should be an opt-in situation um, and that um, distance learning, at least for the next year, is really going to need to be an option everywhere. Um, because also we may see seasonal variation. For example, when flu season hits, I suspect a lot of people will be symptomatic. And so um, I think one thing that can facilitate, um, you know, quick school closure if necessary is having a stable distance program. Yeah, I find it, uh, I was actually going to ask about a distance learning thing. Like you mentioned, has, have schools kind of put more of an emphasis? Like, have you guys had to like think, uh, talk about and like develop a more fleshed out distance learning program? Like, for people, you know, like you were saying, people are sick and they want to, they, they, they don't want to come to physical school. Cause I do know a lot of people who are kind of scared to go back because of like the thing. And I also, you know, in, in the worst, in the scenario where there's another surge and another spike and it's dangerous to go to school, has distance learning become more of a like fleshed out, fully realized option? Great question. So, at least in my school district, the way that distance learning came to be is on Friday at 10 a.m. We learned that school was going to be closed for three weeks and we were supposed to get our students packets by the end of the day. Um, and we were teaching again on Monday. And so you can imagine that um, just in terms of gathering student contact information, communicating with our students, um, not to mention like most of us had never used Zoom before. Um, you know, we put together what we could um, in the time that we had. And I think that as we think about distance learning in the future, I can speak at least for myself and my district, but we've really been able to give a lot more thought to distance learning. How much time can we expect a student to be at the computer? What ways can we um, get them to engage? What platforms are out there? I know um, I've been taking um, an ed tech course that's been really helpful in helping me understand how to create an engaging class in an online environment. And so I think having a summer and also having a school year, um, teachers usually get together for a few days of professional development before the school year starts to really iron out um, a concrete plan for the school year. And I think distance learning can be really deliberately taken into it. Whereas a year ago, most of us hadn't even imagined distance learning and needed to come up with something in 48 hours. We're lucky in that this isn't brand new anymore and we have a chance to be really deliberate about how we do it. All right, I have a couple more here. Um, Ryan at Oh It's Ryan's World. Um, I know I'm not supposed to have favorite listeners, but this, this guy's great. So this is uh, Ryan's question. What kind of support slash directive are they getting or are they receiving from the superintendent and school board members regarding COVID, the upcoming school year and the possibility of reopening? I guess kind of what he's getting at is how supported do teachers feel uh, in this process? I think that um, that is a question where there's no global answer. I think the situations and the relationships between districts and teachers are very different um, in, in different school systems. 
What I will say is um, our school district has taken this issue um, and the health of our students and family really seriously. Um, they had assembled a group of over 100 individuals, of which I was part, to really think through all these different challenges um, and how we might um, have distance learning happen more effectively, do a hybrid program, and how we would safely have um, in-person instruction. And then they've also been seeking the help of medical professionals and the Department of Public Health. Um, I don't know that everything that the district is doing makes it all the way down to um, the teachers. And so I, I'm, I think oftentimes people may not feel supported, but I've actually been really impressed with the amount of care and deliberate thought going into how to do this safely that's happening, um, at least in my district. All right, one more listener question. Uh, this is from Stephen Hewitt at Habu333. <laughs> Um, it's a great, it's a really good question. Is the hybrid schedule two days in the classroom, three days at home, able to give kids the social interactions they need as well as the education while maximizing safety for teachers, students, and families? Great question. Um, I think there's a lot of different hybrid models. So that could be week on week off. Um, it could be two days on three days off. It could be one day a week, the same day each week. I, from my own experience as an educator, feel that even one day a week of in-person time with students would make a massive distance, a massive difference in their ability to have more successful online learning. Um, the school at which I work at is, is a very relational school. It hinges very heavily on student and student-teacher relationships. And so I, I personally believe that even one day a week in person would be infinitely better. Um, I think probably the safest way to do it would be a week at a time, and, and that clearly causes a lot of challenges for, for teacher schedules. I think that, you know, a lot of factors come into play, and, you know, certainly as our nation surges, it's really probably not the best time um, to be opening up schools, but you know, were our numbers to look better, were prevalence to be lower in communities, were um, the investments happening from the state and federal governments to support personal protective equipment, um, adequate custodial cleaning, enough supplies for hand washing. Um, I, I do think like with, um, with, with, with an environment um, in which prevalence is lower with the resources to do it, it would be possible to hold school in a way that is overall quite safe for staff and students. That's a lot of ifs. Yeah. No, our, our producer, Nadim, um, had the same question, but he also, in his very typical fashion, was able to drill down in details that I wouldn't have thought of. And, and that's where the money for this come from to supply this, this extra surgeon protection products and, and masks and deep cleans and all this, where, where would that come from? Yeah. I mean, one of the problems, particularly in California, is that our schools are heavily um, funded by local property tax. Um, and particularly in times of a recession, that can really impact what's going on. Um, I certainly have a lot of my own political views about how money could be shifted uh, to pay for things um, that I, uh, I may not share right now. But, you know, our, <laughs> our government is finding money to bail out airlines. We have found right. a lot of money to uphold prisons where there are a lot more people getting mm -hmm. infected. 
education is a long-term investment, but I think it's one of the most important long-term investments we can possibly make. Um, and so I think that there, there's certainly places that this money can be pulled from. I think it, I think for this to happen, society really needs to decide what its priorities are. And if individuals are really ready for kids to safely get back to school, um, then we can all take um, actions to, to help promote that, both in terms of, you know, our distancing behavior as well as financially um, supporting what needs to happen for school to take place. I think some would argue that in 2020, in the summer, spring of 2020, that we could maybe find some money in police reform slash defunding. <laughs> you don't need to agree or disagree with that, but I believe that there'd be many people who would be uh, uh, argue that case. I would say let's take all the money that we even consider giving to cruise lines to bill them out and use that because <laughs> that's an industry I personally think has. To, and I'm ta- talking to a guy who loves cruises, but I think that needs to go away at this point. And I think this, would be a, this is a, probably a great way to use that money. I would defund also- cruise lines. Defund, defund the cruises. Cruise lines. <laughs> that's our, you, know, you know what we always say here at the House of Pod? Defund cruise lines. I would also mention that... Um, some folks are doing quite well right now here. Amazon is booming. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of our tech companies are doing really well. And, um, you know, this, this also could be an investment for them in the future of their workforce. We talked to Salman That's Khan, an online idea. educator and of Khan Academy and the, the cost, you know, to supply every family in this country with like the ability to go online and learn would end up being like, I don't know, maybe, half a second out of Jeff Bezos day. He would not be right. any, he could pay for all of it and not be any poorer at the end of the day. Right. Um, right. Anyways, before we go off on too many rants, uh, Dr. Emily Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your work as a pediatrician in the emergency rooms. Thank you for your, for the teaching that you're doing. Um, and we really appreciate you coming on. And is there anything that you would like to plug or leave our listeners with? Um, Well, thank you again for having me. If there were one thing to plug um, and one thing that we can learn from other countries is the success of being able to get students back in school really relies on all of us. Um, The countries that have been successful have been successful because those in the community are really taking um, steps to help reduce transmission. And so for our students and for our educators, to go back to school safely. It really takes all of us um, thinking twice about the actions that we may or may not take um, and how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. All right, there you have it, people. Um, please uh, follow us at Twitter, at The House of Pod. If you have questions, email us at hopquestions at gmail.com. Uh, listen and subscribe on iTunes. Leave a review if you haven't. And thank you again, Dr. Frank, for coming. See you guys later. Okay. Uh, everyone's talking about my hair in the comments. Yeah, they really liked your hair. <laughs> On the Twitter post, yeah. Good hair. God, that luscious hair. You'd be played by Zach Efron and Paul Red's love child. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. 
The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.